Okay, well, we're going to take a break from Romans, um, and we're going to look at 1 John, and uh, hopefully I'll, I'll be up here a couple more times this year to continue in 1 John. And um, so there, it's, it's an amazing book. I'm going to do a little uh, introductory work first so that you understand a little bit about the context of John. It's interesting that uh, John is the author, but he's not identified in the text at all. Um, it lacks the customary greeting that, you, that letters had at that time. So a lot of scholars believe, and I, I agree with them, that this was really a sermon and it was delivered to the church, which contains the customary greeting and the customary ending. So, but even though it lacks uh, those two things, um, it's very clear that uh, from how John addresses his hearers that he really cared for these people and these people knew him very well. He addresses them as his own children. And he's not talking about their age, but he's talking about the fact that they were born into the faith uh, through his ministry or they, or they uh, are connected to him through the ministry uh, to hear the preaching and the teaching. So the date of the letter is commonly placed between 85 and 95 AD, but there is strong evidence internally that it could be placed around 65 AD before the destruction of Jerusalem. John writes in a time when the church was well-established and differentiated from Judaism, and it's also likely that the letter came from Ephesus, uh, where John served the church for a number of years. But it was barely 30 years, and not more than 60, since Christ's death and resurrection. And already, there were antichrists and defectors from the faith, and they were troubling the church and dampening the resolve of the faithful. John's pastoral heart and his love for Jesus and for his people compelled him to write to them, and by extension, of course, to us, to warn them and to encourage them in the face of things that challenge their faith. They needed that encouragement then, and we need that encouragement now, because nothing's really changed. We often see things that happen in the world, and just like in John's time, it causes us to doubt. And when we doubt, it robs our joy. So we need encouragement. We, know, we need to know that what we believe is true. We need to be sure that we have eternal life. We need to know that Jesus' promise is trustworthy. Thankfully, the truth hasn't changed either. God hasn't changed. The mission hasn't changed. The victory is still secure. But we need assurance of that so, so that our joy may be full, as John says. John is an expert eyewitness to all the matters that he now starts his letter with. So I'll read the first three verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So John just puts the facts right on the table. This is an eyewitness testimony. This is not a, I heard it from Joe, who heard it from Mary, who found it in a bottle washed up on the shore story. John is an eyewitness to everything he says about this life that was manifested to us. John was one of the three apostles of the twelve who were in Jesus' inner circle. There were John, Peter, and James. And these guys were all eyewitnesses of eyewitnesses. They had the inside track on everything. John watched as Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, Luke 8. John stood in awe as Jesus was transfigured before him on the mountain, and God spoke audibly about his son, Jesus, Matthew 17. John was in the high priest's house while Jesus was put on trial. That's in John 18. And John was at the foot of the cross as the Savior took his last breath and asked John to look after his mother, which he did. That's in John 19. So John's not just some guy off the street with a secondhand story to tell. He was an eyewitness of eyewitnesses. To use a common idiom, what John said was straight from the horse's mouth. Now in John's time, and in our time, unfortunately, there are men who are trying to emulate the other end of the horse when they talk about Jesus. I'll let you think about that. But let's just say that the product has a, a strange fragrance. And if you walk in it, it only makes it worse. Now, John is well aware of that. False teaching robs our joy. We won't see it in our verses today, but... The false teaching that John is addressing is called docetism. And this false teaching held that Christ only appeared to be human. That teaching, of course, obliterates the gospel message. Because if Christ did not come in the flesh, then he was no savior. And that will rob your joy. John directly refutes this docetism in chapter 4, verse 2, where we read, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So John is concerned about our joy. He says it in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He says our. Some translations say your, but it doesn't make a difference. It's our joy. John's in ours. He wants it to be complete in Christ, and that only happens when we can trust Him truly and completely. So have you ever noticed that when you have a goal in mind, something that you really desire, that you have much greater resolve to endure setbacks and struggles in order to achieve the goal? You can bear much more suffering because the goal has so much value. Growing up, I had a neighbor next door, and his dream was to have an in-ground swimming pool in his backyard but he didn't have the money to pay a company to come in and build it for him. But he did have a shovel, and he had a dream. So for the joy that was set before him, he walked out in his backyard and stuck that shovel in the ground. And three years later, after hand-shoveling a 20-by-40 swimming pool with a 10-foot deep end, he experienced the joy of his labor by jumping in. 
That pool was a source of family fun for many years thereafter. But it wasn't fun building it. It was hard, sweaty, strength-depleting work. And no matter how hard he worked each day, there were still plenty more days of hard work ahead. But for the joy set before him, he endured it to the end. He saw it through. Following Christ is a lot like that. Following Christ is an all-in proposition. Christ told us to count the cost. In Luke 14, 26 through 28, we read, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Following Jesus is an all-in proposition, but it's worth it. Christ was all-in when he agreed to come to earth on a salvation mission. Christ was all-in when he set his face towards Jerusalem, even though he knew what would happen there. Christ was all-in when he allowed himself to be arrested by wicked men. Christ was all-in when he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Christ is all in when it comes to saving his people. Because Christ saw it through, we can have confidence in Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We were the joy set before him. John is concerned about our joy because we will not be able to bear up under suffering if we are not absolutely confident in the outcome. When we consider following Jesus, the stakes are high. It could cost us family. It could cost us friendships. It could cost us our comfort. It could even cost us our physical lives, as it did all of the apostles. The stakes are high. But listen to this promise that Jesus gives us from Mark's gospel. Chapter 10, 29 and 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now. In this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children in lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Eternal life is worth the cost of following Jesus. But because the stakes are so high, we come to my first point. 
We will never be all in for Jesus unless our trust and our confidence in his promise is absolutely sure. The promise of eternal life is the joy that's set before us. That joy is our motivation. That joy is our confidence. That joy is our perseverance. That joy is our strength. That joy is our compass. That joy is what John is so concerned about. Now jump ahead for a second to 1 John 5 and verse 13, and we see the whole purpose of John's writing. He says there in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The joy set before us is this promise of eternal life and John wants his hearers, that's you, to know that you have that life. And we can know it because the promise comes from Jesus Christ himself. Because Christ himself is one with God the Father. Because Christ came to earth in the flesh. Because Christ lived a perfect life, a perfect sinless life. And he used that life to purchase us in place of the Adam who failed. Because Christ used his perfect obedience to purchase righteousness for us, because Christ suffered the wrath of God against sin on the cross in our place, because Christ rose again from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God, making continual intercession for us, because of all Christ has done for us, we can have confidence in his promise of eternal life. John is an eyewitness to all of those things. John is an eyewitness of eyewitnesses. John heard Christ's words in his own ears. John saw Christ's miracles with his own eyes. John touched Jesus' body with his own hands. John saw the risen Christ and he received the commission that comes to all of us. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John knows that we must have complete confidence in the message of Christ because that produces the joy, the joy that we need to persevere through this life. We're not in heaven yet, folks. The world is falling into gross evil all around us and fast. I don't think anybody's confused about that. We're facing unprecedented challenges in our lives right now because we follow Christ. We're seeing a complete rebellion against the true truth of God and Christ. I don't think anybody's confused about that. The battle against the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh is front and center. It's real life to us every day. No one's confused about that. And in the face of all these things, John knows that we need to have confidence. We have to have confidence that what we believe is really true. We need confidence that Christ really came to earth. We need confidence that Christ really is God in the flesh. 
We need confidence that we really do have eternal life in his name. That being all in for Jesus is worth it. Unless we know these things, it will steal our joy. And we may not persevere to the end. John wants us to have confidence and know that we have eternal life so that we can be all in for Jesus. Because Jesus is all in for us. And John is an eyewitness to all those things. Now in verse 5, we begin with this testimony. The words of Jesus that John now gives to us. 1 John 1 verse 5. This is the message. We have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. C.S. Lewis famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. If you have light, then you can see. And C.S. is touching on one of the great metaphors of Scripture. God is light. Now, we hear that God is love a lot. And that's true, of course. But we don't commonly hear God described as light. The unbelieving world is always shouting that God is love. And then they define love as letting everyone do as they please as long as they're not hurting anyone. They say it's unloving to tell somebody that they're wrong. But if love is not bound up in truth, it's not love at all. God is surely love, but he is also just as surely light. Light and love are inseparable. But what does it mean when the, God, when the Scripture says that God is light? Well, the Scripture talks about light a lot, and it's often contrasted with darkness. Metaphorically, light is a placeholder for truth, purity, and holiness. And darkness, on the other hand, is a placeholder for evil, impurity, and falsehood. Now, the metaphor of light and dark can be traced all through the Scripture. So it's a very good thing for us to think of God in terms of light, especially in our day. Light, in our English language, is a word that you can't mangle as much as you can mangle the word love. We only have one word in our language to express love. We love Moose Tracks ice cream. Well, at least I do. We love our spouse. But more than Moose Tracks, I hope. And we love God. But more than anything else, I hope. We love all kinds of things, right? But the definition of love changes in each sentence. Because of that, we can insert all kinds of meaning into that word love. 
So it naturally becomes useful then to define God as love because when we can make, then we can make God in our own image. We just change the definition of love and we change the God we define by it. But if the unbelieving world had to describe God as light, well, they'd have a lot harder time mangling him into an unbiblical caricature. So knowing the depth of that metaphor about light and dark really helps us to learn about God. The first mention of light is, you guessed it, right in the, in the first four verses of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And, God, and, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. So the first thing that God did after bringing the formless matter of earth into existence was turn on the light. So why did he do that? Well, of course it was because he had to see what he was doing. But now that the light is on, what do we see in these verses? Out of the formless void, God established the light. Now, it's very interesting to note that the sun, the stars, and the moon were not created yet. But light came before them. God is light because he is the source of light. And God is the sustainer of the light created on day one. And God remains the sustainer of light to this day. Even though God created other things that emanate that light. So God is the source of all light. There's no light apart from him. If you need light, you need to go to God. Whenever you look at a light bulb, remember that its ability to give light was established on day one of creation. Now, after creating light on the first day, God immediately declares that the light is good. So right there, we see that light is a physical thing, but it has a moral character. Why? Because it displays the glory of God. In fact, all of the physical creation has a moral character that displays the glory of God. In Romans 1, 19 and 20, we read this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So everything that was made has a moral character. And light always overcomes darkness. Darkness can never overcome the light. 
So to play off C.S. Lewis, you don't have to look at the lamp to know that it's on. You know it's on because you can see everything in the room by it. We need light to see things, both physically and spiritually. If you need spiritual light, you must go to God. In Psalm 119, 105, we read, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. This verse clearly shows the nature of God's word and its ability to illuminate us. It adds yet another dimension to the metaphor. God is light and God's word is also light. Without physical light, there's darkness. Without God's word, there's spiritual darkness. Without God's word, you can't see spiritual truth. God makes the first distinction then in Genesis 1 verse 4. He separates the light from the darkness. Here in the beginning of Genesis, we're talking about light and dark in a physical sense. But because the Bible is a progressive revelation, it, it gives us more information as it continues on. And it's telling one story. This physical separation of light and dark foreshadows the cosmic battle that will soon ensue on the earth and goes on right to this day. That's the battle between good and evil. Darkness as a physical reality is not evil. It's good and it has a good purpose by God's design. It provides a way for us to rest and sleep. The cycle of light and dark sustains the ecosystems of the world. It turns points set as red so we can enjoy them during the holidays and all kinds of other things that I don't know about. <laughs> but in the spiritual realm, darkness has an evil connotation. And many times, it's in the physical darkness that evil plans are carried out. By Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, the whole human race is plunged into the darkness of sin by the rebellion of Adam and Eve at the temptation of Satan. And to this day, we're in that battle. In Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sin plunges us into the darkness. The only way out of the dark is to come into the light. If you need light, you got to come to God. So let's add another layer to the metaphor. In Matthew 4:16, we read these words. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And in John 9, verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So who's the great light in Matthew and the light of the world in John? Well, it's Jesus. It's Christ the Messiah. 
So notice that in the verse from John that Jesus refers to himself as the light. He doesn't say, I'm a light, but the light. Only God can claim that for himself. You know, we often miss the impact of what Jesus says. But all you have to do is put the claim in your own mouth and you get instant clarity. (laughs) This is a direct claim to deity. Jesus is God. In in, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. God is the source of light. God's word is light. And in the verses above, we see that Jesus is the word and the light. No one in this room can claim to be the light of the world in himself. But listen up. This is good news. By our virtue of, the, of connection to Christ, the fact that we belong to him, that he's our savior, we are all lights in the world. I am a light. You are a light. And together, we reflect his light into the world. We're like light bulbs. We're not the light, but we have been created just like that light bulb, the sun, the moon, and the stars, to emulate that light, to emanate that light. Jesus is the source of our light. And collectively, as the body of Christ, with him as our head, we are the light of the world. We, the body of Christ, are to shine his light into the world until he returns. We see that clearly in Matthew where Jesus tells us, Matthew 5, 14 and 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Light always overcomes the darkness. If you need light, you have to come to Jesus and be connected to his body. That's the church. Now, I want to add one more layer to the metaphor. Light is a synonym for truth. In Psalm 43.3, we read, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. The Hebrews had a way of doubling up or doubling over a word or a phrase so that the one could emphasize the other. So the light illustrates, emphasizes, and expands the abstract idea of truth. God's light is God's truth. If you need to know the truth, you must come to Jesus. You must come to the light. In Ephesians 5, 8 
through 9, we read, For at one time you were in darkness. All of us were. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So if it's good, it's from the light. If it's true, it's from the light. If it's right, it's from the light. And in John 14, verse 6, we read, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that's why he is the light of the world. The light reveals the way, the light reveals the truth, and the light leads to eternal life. Which brings me to my second point. The light of God's truth always overcomes the darkness of all evil. So God is light is a very fitting description of him. But now check this out. In Revelation 21, verse 23, we read this. And the city, the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In the heavenly city, the symbolism of light becomes a reality. God, the Lamb, illuminates the city with His glory. Whew. There's no need for a created thing to shine light in heaven. God is the light of heaven. Think about that for a minute and try not to explode your brain. <laughs> but there is bad news. If you're not living in verse 7, you will never see the light of heaven. In verse 6, John warns us of a lie that we tell ourselves. Verse 6 says, If we say, we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and we do not practice the truth. John wants you to know that you will see the light of heaven. So John gives us a simple statement of fact, which is my third point. You cannot walk in darkness and have a relationship with God. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So let's unpack that verse a little bit. First, John uses another metaphor, the, the walk. Walk. He uses the word walk. Walk is a metaphor for something deeper than just walking. In this context, it represents practical daily living. And the word practical has practice embedded in it. So we could say that your walk stands for what are you practicing? What are you doing as a regular way of conduct? Now, darkness, we have seen, is a metaphor for, that, for all that's unholy, impure, and untrue. It stands in direct opposition to the light. God is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. 
So to walk in darkness is to live our lives in opposition to God and His truth. Now, you might be asking yourself, how is that possible? How can believers live in opposition to God? Well, the verse says, if we say we have fellowship with Him. John's referring to people who claim the name of Christ. People who say, I believe, and yet they're walking in darkness. What they say and what they do, they don't match. Do you know it is possible to think that you're a Christian and not be one? The Apostle Paul warns us about this. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the truth. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. If you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. If Christ is in you, then you are in Christ. Christ is the determining factor. If you claim Christ, but you walk in darkness, Christ is not in you. If you're walking in darkness as a daily practice, then you're not in Christ. John will give us several tests to help us determine if we're in the faith as we study his letter. But the first one is right here in verses 6, 8, and 10. It's what do we do with our sin? That's the first test. What are you doing with your sin? But before we look at that test, I I want you to hear from... uh, the Gospel of Matthew, because Jesus warns us too. And he uses that metaphor of light and dark. He says it this way. The eye is a lamp to the body, or of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is that darkness? Our eyes are what we see the world with, both physically and spiritually. If we have the wrong worldview, our worldview is not informed by God's truth, the true light, then we will think what we see is light and truth, when in fact, it's dark and false. You know, in a way, we're like moths. Moths navigate by light. They use a light source to get where they want to go. Now, if they use the true light, the light that God put in place, like the moon, these moths will never run into an error when they navigate. But a moth can also choose to navigate by the light of a bug zapper. And you know how that turns out, right? So Jesus says, your eyes are a lamp to your body. Your eyes illuminate your thinking. If your eye's healthy, it's focused on the right light, the true light, the true things of God. And then your whole body, your life and your soul are filled with light. But here's the scary thing. If your eyes focused on the wrong light, 
the things that are opposed to God and his truth. Then your body, your life, and your soul will be filled with darkness, which is evil, but you will think that it's light. You will think you're in the truth, but you're really blind, and you're in the dark. That's the bad eye that Jesus is talking about. It can see, but it only looks at darkness, and then it thinks it's light. Jesus tells us that what we set our eyes on is what we're going to run after. So will we run after the things of the world or will we run after the things of God? Now, if you fear that you might be in the dark, the first thing that you have to do is step into the light of God's Word. You need to read the Scriptures. The Scriptures will reveal the true truth, the true light, and that light is safe to navigate by. We can look at it like this. When we stand in the light, we all cast a shadow. That shadow is your sin. In the light of the Word of God, you will be able to see the shadow of your sin. Now, when you see your sin, what do you have to do? You need to turn around. That's repentance. When you turn around, your sin is behind you. And now you're facing the light. Keep walking into it. In Romans 3.23, we read that we all have that shadow of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's what we do with that sin that matters. If you can see your shadow, then you must turn around and walk into the light. So now let's look at John's test. I'm going to read verses 6, 8, and 10 together. I'm going to skip the verses in between. John says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So on the first point, if you're walking in the dark, you are in a lie. You're not in the truth. Two, if you think you have no sin, you have deceived yourself. You're lying to yourself. And you do that because you don't have the light of the Word of God in you. You're unaware of the truth, just like the moth who's unaware of the bug zapper. And point three, if you deny your sin, you say, I'm not a sinner, I've never sinned. Well, you're making God a liar himself. You'd be better off being a moth flying into a bug zapper than facing God with that accusation on your lips. So let's do some diagnostic work. Do you claim to be a believer? Do you say that you are a Christian? 
well, then certain things should follow from that confession. What do we do with our sin? So as Christians, especially if we're mature, sometimes it's hard for us to determine what our sin is and confess it. That's pretty normal. But I think it's because we're only experts on one class of sin, the sins of commission, the do-not-do class of sins. Many of the commandments are framed that way. But all of them come with duties. And if we don't carry out those duties that are attached to those commands, you are committing sins of omission. The do these things commands are being omitted. So if you need help with that, go back to Mike's sermon series on the Ten Commandments where he spells it out in brutal detail, both the do-nots and the do's of the Ten Commandments. But just to review a little bit of it, how about the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness? You, shan't, you shouldn't lie. Well, we all slip on that one once in a while, right? But we repent and we're good to go. We're all good. But let me ask you, when's the last time that you stood for the truth? Have you omitted that? When's the last time you put your neck out for the truth? When's the last time you put truth above the cost to stand on it? On the job? With your neighbor? With your family? With your friends? Even with your government? You know, it's not enough to stop the bad by not telling lies. We have to restore the good by standing for the truth. All right, how about murder? Do not murder. Well, most of us have never murdered anyone, physically speaking. But remember what Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Okay, I'm under that bus. But we've never really murdered anybody. We've repented, and so we're good to go, right? We haven't committed that sin. All right, well, what about fighting for life? Did you admit that? Are you meaningfully in the fight against abortion? Against hunger? Against sickness? Against poverty? It's not enough to stop the bad. We have to restore the good by fighting for life. Okay, don't steal. Most of us have not robbed a bank. Maybe we've considered it, I don't know. But mostly for us, it's gum and pencil theft and maybe a little cheating on the taxes. But we've repented of all that, right? We're good to go. Maybe. What about providing for others? Have you omitted that? Do you make sure that you have enough to help those in need? Are you quick to give and to lend and don't expect a return? Do you squeeze as much value as you can into your labor for your boss in exchange for your paycheck? Do you keep your promises? 
Are you on time for your appointments and responsibilities? Do you pay your bills on time? All of those things are the opposite of theft. They're the duties of that command. It's not enough to stop the bad. We have to restore the good. We have to provide for our neighbors. Do you say that you believe the scriptures? Excellent confession. But do you read them and meditate on them every day? Are you admitting that? In Psalm 119.11 we read, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's a good way to deal with sin. Storing up the word. Have you stored up the word in your heart? In Joshua 1.8, the famous verses, this book of the law, this thing right here, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Do you meditate on the word every day? Psalm 1, 1 and 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Do you delight in reading the word every day? Have you omitted those things? It's not enough to claim that the word of God is true. It's not enough to say you believe it. You must know it, and you must obey it. Do you teach the word to your family every day through family devotions? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in all righteousness. And in Deuteronomy, we have this direct command. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. That word needs to be what you look at the world through. Have you omitted that? Fathers, this is your command. It's not enough to shield your family from lies. You also have to teach them the truth of God's word. So work with your wives to order your household according to God's design 
and watch the blessings flow. If you struggle with that and you want help, we can help you. Ask me or Mike or any of the elders. Well, now that I've thrown us all under the bus, <laughs> welcome to Highlands. <laughs> What's the solution? Well, here's where our joy is going to come in, okay? I know we're all convicted. <laughs> I spent plenty of time repenting <laughs> when I was writing this sermon. <laughs> but verse 7 tells us, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We must walk in the light. As he is in the light. That's the qualifier there. Well. I'm glad that's the easy thing, huh? All we have to do is walk in the light like he's in the light. But wait a minute. God lives in an unapproachable light. He is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. We learned that in verse 5. God is light, and in him no darkness at all. But I'm not like that. Romans 3.23 proves that I have darkness and sin. I can't walk in the light like he's in the light. John, this sounds like Jesus in Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But how? How can we walk in the light as he's in the light? Well, he didn't leave us hanging. It's verse 9. It's the answer to the sin test. Confess your sins. Stop hiding. Stop justifying. Stop denying. Stop ignoring. And confess your sins. And he, that's Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Darkness gone. That's the good news. That is the gospel. Christians, men, women, teens, and children, this is your everyday life. We live in the gospel. We live in the promise. We confess our sins daily and we receive back forgiveness which restores our joy. That's the joy that John wants for us. To know that we're forgiven and we can have confidence that we have eternal life. We can know it because every day when we see that shadow of sin, we repent we turn around and we face the light again and he's faithful to forgive us and to restore our joy. We won't be perfect in this life. Nope. But we can keep coming back to the fount of joy in the Lord and be forgiven. 
And brothers and sisters, each day we will have less to repent of as we walk into the light. And one day, on that day, the Lord will return and he will remove even the shadow of sin from us. Darkness gone. And on that day, we will be in the light as fully as he is in the light. Remember Revelation 21. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In order to walk in the light, we must be confessing and repenting of our sin. That's how we get into the light, and that's how we stay in the light. So I have a little illustration, courtesy of my dear wife, Pam. It's a little diagram that kind of might cement this into your head a little bit. It's up there on the screen. In the center, you see that God the Trinity is the source of light, and his spoken word is the truth, and the true word is the light that shines out and pushes away the darkness. When you acknowledge the truth and repent of your sins, when you place your trust in Jesus, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That source of light there now is inside of you. You are now like a light bulb that works. As a believer, you shine that light into the world. You are a partner with Christ in making and maturing disciples by shining that light of the truth into the dark world that needs to be saved. If you're a light bulb that doesn't shine, it's because your filament is broken. You don't have the Holy Spirit. Repent and trust Christ and be restored as a working light bulb. Now, I just want to have a few words with those who are here or watching online that maybe you realized that if this message is true, then you're in trouble. Maybe you never heard the good news before. Maybe you realize for the first time that you're not in the light. The pure light of God's a good thing. It's perfectly good. It's perfectly pure. There's no darkness in it at all. But you will never be able to enter that light unless the darkness of your sin is removed. And only Jesus can do that for you. If you end up dying with your darkness still attached, that pure light of God will vaporize you. you it won't be your blessing. It will be your curse for eternity. So I'm begging you, confess your sins today and trust Christ. I'm not saying just believe in him. Don't just agree with the facts. Trust him. If you were stuck in a deep pit and someone lowers you a rope, you can believe in that rope with all your might. But you won't get out of that pit until you grab that rope. 
grab onto Jesus. That's what the Bible means when it says believe. You grab onto Jesus, confessing your sins to him, and then you trust him to remove your sin and pull you out of that pit. He promises to do that for you. This verse is for you. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who grabs that rope is coming out of that pit. Now for us who are in the light, keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with each other. When you see that shadow of sin, turn. Turn around. Confess and be restored. Jesus waits faithfully and he forgives fully. Then go on walking in the light. Church, I didn't mention it in verse 3. But when we cling to that eyewitness testimony of John, which is nothing other than the good news of the forgiveness of sins, the gospel itself, we're not only restored to God, we're restored to each other. That's joy complete. Hey, the mission's tough. The stakes are high. But we're not in this alone. Nope. Not only do we have Christ and his sure promise of success, but he has joined us to an army of faithful believers who walk together. They are the hundredfold of Mark 10, of houses of brothers, of sisters, of mothers, of children, of lands that we receive in Christ to help us in the persecutions of this life and in the age to come. We will live together, our joy complete for all of eternity. Now that's joy. So going back to my pool guy just for a minute, my friend, for the joy set before him, shoveled out a pool for his family single-handedly. But what if the whole neighborhood came out with their shovels and helped? My friends, the Great Commission is before us. Together, we can carry out this mission with complete confidence that we will succeed. Our joy will be complete as we work together to glorify our great God and to bring his message of reconciliation to everyone we can. What joy can we have as we work together? Hmm. As we love one another. As we carry one another's burdens. As we spur one another on to good works. We have the privilege and the joy of making the light of the gospel visible 
Let's walk together in the light as he is in the light. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are both humbled by your words this morning and encouraged. Lord, even though we have a shadow, we can put it behind us, Father, through the work of Christ. Oh Lord, forgive us for playing around with our shadows. Lord, strengthen us to turn to the light each day. Lord, help us even more so to shine your light into this dark world that many more souls will be rejoicing with us on that day when we're in the light of the Lamb on the new heavens and the new earth. Make it so. We ask it for your glory. Amen.